gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp and Rachel Miller is here with me, my co-host. And, you know, if you've been listening the last several weeks, I, I want to say maybe four or five weeks ago, we did an episode on the creeds and kind of talked about the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. These are foundational to the Christian faith. And we want to, we've been kind of talking about how some of the heresies have um, even played out just in our modern times and on some of the certain things. And so lately we've been seeing some different things just having to do with who Christ is. And so I thought it would be good to talk about just the humanity of Christ and who Christ is. And um, we talked about, when we were talked about the creeds, just some of the things that were in the creeds because of specific heresies that were going on back in that day. And I'll, I'll read just a little section from the Nicene Creed that has to do with Christ and who he is. One Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again. And it goes on from there, but you can, even as I'm reading it, you know, I think of different heresies that that will be opposed to something that's, that's talked about there. Um, even there's people throughout church history of den who've denied the virgin birth. Uh, who deny the resurrection and, and all sorts of things. And Rachel, maybe you can talk about some of the things that it says in the, in the Westminster Confession. You know, you know when we talked about uh, eternal subordination, you know, one of the things that we dealt with uh, more specifically was about Christ's divinity and his equality with the Father. 
uh, as God. And, you know, it's equally important for us to look at what it means for Christ to be, you know, truly man. Uh, and so there are, you know, errors that, it, that have been taken place in history in both directions, both about Christ's divinity and Christ's humanity. And getting it right is something that uh, the creeds and the confessions have, have all uh, taken, you know, considerable pains to discuss and get the wording right, just so that they say the right things. Um, the Westminster Confession, uh, again, starts with, of course, that, that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father. Right? So it starts out with him and his, his divinity. It says, when the fullness of time was come, take upon himself man's nature. It says, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. So he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance. He has two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. So this is very God and very man, yet one Christ and the only mediator between God and man. Um, what's important about that is, is Jesus did not just appear to be human. He didn't just look like us. He actually took on our nature. And so he is, uh, he is human, right? And the, he suffered the same kinds of it's infirmities that we had, that we have. Um, and we see that in scripture. He, he got hungry. He slept. He, um, he cried. Uh, he was able to be sick and wounded. Right? That he suffered in the many of the same ways that we do, and he was, and it is still truly human. And um, as we'll see as we look at some of the uh, the various heresies that this was addressing, um, the the questions that come up. I like the way the the larger catechism deals with it and talking about Christ as our mediator. And, you know, why did he have to be both God and man? And you know, he has, it says in question 38, he had to be God so that he could sustain the, the wrath of God, that he could apply his sacrifice to us and to satisfy God's justice. Um, but then it's also, it was required that the mediator be man. And the reason is that he had to, it says, advance our nature. He had to um, you know, do what, what Adam failed to do. He had to be human and do what we were supposed to do. So he had to perform obedience to the law. He had to suffer for us in our nature. But it also says that he had to be man to have a fellow feeling of our infirmities and that we would receive adoption of sons and have comfort and access to the throne of grace. And, you know, that's truly, we'll get into this a little bit. It's truly amazing to think about that the Son of God took on human nature and suffered for us, was obedient for us, knows what it is to be human and to suffer. And, you know, we'll, we'll get to one of my favorite passages from Hebrews in just a little bit on that. But um, question 40 from the larger catechism says, why why did the mediator have, mediator have to be both God and man in one person? And it says that 
it was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. We have a lot of things from Westminster Confession, the Shorter and Larger Catechism, and I will put them in the episode notes since we're not going to read all of them. But I always find those really helpful. And I was thinking, even as you were going over some of the what was in Westminster, Rachel, just when my kids were learning the um, children's catechism, when they're like two, two years old, three years old, it's pretty early on in the children's catechism, you know, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And even these different things and my kids know these different things about Christ because of learning the catechism and then later the shorter catechism. And so there's just some really helpful stuff. And, you know, you had mentioned, you know, fully God and fully man. And we'll see as we go through some of these heresies. It's not like he was just man in certain areas. He was fully man um, and fully God. So one of the ones we've probably talked about the most on on this podcast just because it comes up sometimes in our discussion of eternal subordination and these are we're going to go over the some of the early heresies not all of them um there's lots of them let me tell you um but we're going to go over um just a few of the ones that i i kind of picked the ones that i hear mentioned today more often where sometimes that they'll they'll come up um but there was there was quite a few i i recommend uh, you know, learning church history and understanding them because they do come up, you know, even today. I, in, in fact, I really don't think there's any new heresies. I just think a lot of the heresies are just old heresies repackaged. So the first one being Arianism. And so Arianism really thought that Christ was the first and highest, uh, the highest ranking created being. So instead of him, him being God from all eternity, they they believe that he was he was created and I know that it's kind of uh, controversial to sometimes people will say eternal subordination is Arianism and it isn't but there is some there's a reason why people make that connection Rachel maybe you could talk about why they make that connection the connection and we talked to it a little bit in our episode that we did with Glenn on uh, ESS but the connection is often made because not only did the Arians believed that Christ was, you know, the, the created being, but they also believed that he was subordinate or in, in submission to the Father. And it's the issue. The issue is that many of the current arguments that are made about uh, in support of eternal subordination or eternal submission uh, use a lot of the same um, verses and argument arguments that the Arians used in that aspect of their. Uh, in their defense of what they believe, you know, obviously the people today who, who affirm eternal subordination or eternal uh, submission of the son are not, um, are not teaching that Christ was created. They, they believe that, uh, that the son of God is eternal, eternally God, uh, uncreated. Um, but it's, it's the use of similar language and similar arguments and similar use of scriptures to support their arguments that leads to the um, the commonality between the two. And and one reason why when we have that discussion too, where we'll talk about Nicene Orthodoxy or Nicene Christianity, is because uh, what um, eternal subordination 
uh, eternal functional subordination or eternal submission of the son or, you know, different things that we call it. When we um, talk about those things, it's it's direct having the son uh, submit to the father, being subordinate to the father is opposed to what was talked about at the Council of Nicaea, where Arianism was opposed. (laughs) So Nestorianism, and I hear about... I hear about that um, every once in a while. I I can't think of a modern example. Maybe you can. But um, Nestorianism opposed the the hypostatic union. We can talk about what that is in a second. And taught that Jesus existed in two separate persons. So the man Jesus and the divine son of God. This is where the language of the creeds, the language of our confessions is so important. So maybe you can talk about what the hypostatic union is. Well, that's what we talked about right at the very end. Um, in the Westminster Confession section that Jesus has two whole, perfect, and distinct natures. He has the Godhead and the manhood, right? And they're joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, so that he is very God and very man at the same time. And that is is ta- what the, the union there is talking about, is that um, the two natures are... Uh, Jesus has those two natures but those natures aren't confused they're not combined they are, you know, there's the human nature and and the Godhead at the same time in Christ, but it's inseparable Yeah, and Nestorianism kind of taught that um, that the divine was controlling the human, and so what Rachel just said a second ago is really important and that was condemned at the Synod of Ephesus. And I do I do recommend learning about some of these early synods and councils um, because they dealt with a lot of these heresies. And I think it's helpful to understand them because they will come up. Maybe we're not dealing with something like that right now. But it, I mean, at least in our, in our general circles, I think you have different cults and stuff that um, have versions of these things. This isn't one that you necessarily hear about a lot, but it is one that has to do with Jesus' um, Apollinarianism. And so they thought that Jesus had a human body and a human soul, but the mind was taken over by the eternal Lagos. So, I mean, again, it's just, it really opposes Jesus being fully man and fully God. Docetism, and so um, it actually, well, it's, Part of, part of the word comes from a Greek word that means to seem. And so they taught that Jesus seemed to be human, but was not. He only seemed to have a physical body because he was fully divine. So again, this is not Jesus being fully God and fully man. Right. And, and that would be, you know, that would go against what the teaching about the bodily resurrection, that, that you know, Jesus died on the cross, that his body was actually crucified and and it's a if he didn't actually have a physical body then he didn't actually die and he didn't actually you know suffer and take the wrath of god for our sins it's a very dangerous set of um of heresies when you mess with the who jesus is and everything that we were talking about just um a little earlier about how christ suffered suffered like we suffer and um those sorts of things docetism would would be opposed to all of that and some of the verses that we're gonna go through in just a second the only other one that i would add because you do actually hear it some is uh, adoptionism where um, 
Jesus was a, a human, born human, who's then adopted by God as the Son of God, right? Which is kind of similar to some of these others, but it, it stands separately. It's a different type of misunderstanding of who Jesus is. You know, something I was um, sharing with Rachel this week when I was doing some reading and I thought was just fascinating. And I did so much reading, I couldn't find where I had read it, but I think I can recall. But one of the things that the person that I was reading was talking about is how um, some of these heresies came out of people believing a certain way and then trying to fit their theology into what they already believed. And, you know, I thought about how much that happens now. I think um, that some people who hold to eternal functional subordination have done that. You know, I believe this, and so now i got to make it work. I, d- I don't think that they think in those terms, but if they oppose it, then, you know, their whole view, certain views on manhood or womanhood, for instance, um, become difficult to hold to. And so it, I think it's a good reminder for us to make sure that we're getting our theology from the Word of God. Yes, that's a very good point. I think I, I think of how many things when I was younger married, and there was a lot of different, I think, reactionary views on manhood and womanhood and children and stuff like that. And it was easy to buy into some of those things because they sounded good. Mm-hmm. But they weren't, and thankfully my husband, being very wise, would say, I don't know that that's biblical. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's it's it's always important to make sure that um, that our foundation of what we believe is is solid, and that the foundation is from Scripture, and not just because we we want to find you know proof texts or evidence for something, and we want it to be a certain way. Right, exactly. So we we want to talk about just some. I mean, obviously, this is not going to be exhaustive. I'm, I was trying to think of maybe, and maybe I can think of something later. Maybe you know, Rachel. Um, something that would be a good book on this. I I think, obviously, systematic theologies Mm -hmm. definitely um, deal a lot with this. So that's probably what I would recommend. I don't know if you have anything. Not off the top of my head. Okay. I couldn't (laughs) think of anything either. What I was thinking of is specifically, um, you know, I wanted to mention Ligonier did a a, a statement on Christology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember. I know that there's some things in there that some people have taken issue with, and I don't really know all of that. But I did read some articles that were talking about that statement that were really helpful, and one of which I'll link in the episode notes. So we want to talk about some specific things. Uh, One of the things that when we talk about Christ's humanity, um, there have been a lot of, of articles and books and sermons and movements over the last especially you know 20 30 years about about being called to imitate Christ and you know certainly we should imitate Christ in the ways that uh, scripture calls us to Um, I think we should be careful about using that language on all things because obviously you know despite what some um, some languages used we can't imitate everything that Christ did in his humanity we cannot imitate his incarnation we can't imitate or recreate salvation or his death that paid for our sins right but there are aspects of his humanity that we're called to imitate and i think that it's important that we don't lose sight of those because christ's humanity gives us a model to follow of how we should live but that's not the only reason obviously because you know we his his life and death 
uh, served a, a very great purpose in um, providing for us in his, uh, his righteousness for us and his obedience of the law for us. Um, but there certainly are areas where scripture says that we are to model our lives around his, um, his behavior. And, you know, when, when the goal of, of our sanctification is to be conformed into Christ's likeness. You know, some of that uh, we can see in um, the, the kinds of behaviors that we are called to model, like Christ. That, I, that's really good, and I think really important. You know, one of the things that you and I, I think, have both seen, it, we've talked in the past about some of the views in the church on biblical manhood and womanhood and uh, we even talk about my Michael Horton's article I, I forget the exact name maybe you remember um, remember it but um, having to do with almost this toxic max masculinity and I see sometimes where people al almost want to paint Jesus not how scripture does but their idea of you know Jesus is the ultimate example of masculinity and so therefore we're going to say he didn't empathize. He wasn't, he didn't, you know, he had necessary humility, but not really, or these sorts of things. And I think it's really dangerous, really dangerous to go that, that direction. The Michael Horton article is muscular Christianity. You can't read through the New Testament and not see some of these things about Christ. Um, so humility, obviously, um, in Philippians 2, 3 through 8, it says, do nothing from selfishness or empty, empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that really is, I think, the most amazing example of humility right there. And you see it several times in Scripture where, um, you know, Christ says that we are his servants or his slaves, right? We are his, bound to him. And the servants are not greater than their masters. So if, if Christ lived a life of humility, lived a life of service, as we'll talk about, then, you know, we're called to the same. Uh, and we're called to humility and not putting ourselves as more important than our others, right? Not looking out only for ourselves, but for the interests of others. And his, his attitude, his life is our model in that. And this passage really, really says kind of what you were just saying mm -hmm. earlier. So this one we'll spend a little bit more time on because this one we've been kind of hearing recently that hearing that empathy is a bad thing. Yeah, it's interesting to me to, to have people go after it that way. Um, I think I've even heard, you know, there's, a, there's some difference between sympathy and empathy with empathy being something that we should not, uh, we should not as Christians, that we should not try for um, or promote um, What's interesting to me is I, I, I looked up some of the history of the words and empathy is a, a, a modern word. Like it wasn't coined until I think the 1900s. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that the concept didn't exist before then. And, you know, while some of the scripture passages, like the Hebrews one that we're going to read, uses the word sympathize, um, what you see, the language, like in the, the Westminster Larger Catechism of the fellow feelings, right? That, that idea of fellow feelings is, it, it's the same idea as empathize, right? That we are to, to, to feel alongside someone else, right? And that, that common experience that we have is, is what is the heart of empathy. So the, the verse that you get to that we're talking about from Hebrews 14, Hebrews 4, is we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Right. That sounds like empathy to me, not sympathy. Right. It really does. And some of the more more modern translations, uh, I saw a few of them use empathize there instead of sympathize. And I'm not sure which, I don't remember off the top of my head, which translations do it which way. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, reading some of these things, I just, because um, I, I actually read something, Rachel, and maybe we read the same thing, I don't remember, that said, oh, we should absolutely sympathize, but if you empathize, then you can no longer be helpful. Yeah. And and I don't think that's true. No, I agree. I don't think it is either. And I think that... Um, what you see here, the description, I don't think there is such a strong dividing line between the meaning of sympathize and empathize as, as that kind of discussion assumes. Uh, I think that there is a lot of overlap in, in what we're called to. So it can be called sympathy, it can be called empathy. Um, but either way, what we're, what we're shown here is that Christ understands our weakness and understands our temptations and understands our sufferings because he has been through all of the same things. It's a shared experience, of course, him for him without sin, right? And so that shared experience, that idea of coming alongside someone, uh, and we see this in another passage that, you know, Colleen and I both really uh, find to be very, very precious to us, is that we are called to come alongside someone and comfort them because we have been comforted through the same things or very similarly. And so that's in second Corinthians one, blessed to be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. So also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So I think that that draws that same parallel of, of that coming alongside, and demonstrating, uh, the the love and concern that you have for someone, and the fact that you can empathize, you can uh, feel with them because you have felt it before. Yeah. So not only do we see that Christ had empathy, we are called to the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as Rachel said, the passage that she just read is is very precious to both of us because we have seen um, firsthand how the Lord has brought comfort to us because of people coming and empathizing because they understood what we'd been through. We talked about that in the infant loss episode. Mm-hmm. 
and how we have been able to empathize with people going through something that we've been through. Um, so, so, so saying that empathy is wrong, you know, right. really is, um, goes right against what we're called to and who Christ is. And you, you see that too, you know, in the passage when, uh, when Jesus comes, when Lazarus has died. And again, you have to remember, Jesus knew Lazarus was dead, right? Knew from knew he was dead, knew that he was about to raise him again, like knew everything about what was happening, and yet when he comes, it says that uh, it's in John eleven, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and he said, "Where have you laid him?" And they said to him, "Lord, come and see." And then Jesus wept, right? So he is moved to tears over the death of his friend and over the shared sadness with the others who love Lazarus, right? You know, all of that's going on. And that's in not any way an inappropriate way for us to, to behave. You know, we, we are, you know, we, we weep with those who weep, right? We, we come alongside and we can, we can suffer with them in the sense of being with them and sharing with them their pain because we have experienced similar pains because we know it hurts and because we love them and we want to encourage them and that is not at all in any way inappropriate for us well i'm glad you brought out the weep with those who weep um i don't think that sympathy even even though i do think they're connected like you said Mm -hmm. i don't think sympathy is why i weep with those who weep but it's empathy Mm -hmm. why i weep with those who weep yeah i would agree um so i I found a little thing written by Stephen Nichols that I thought was really helpful. From, and he was talking about that Ligonier Christology statement. And he says, the phrase common infirmities, which they have in the um, statement, is borrowed from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is a beautiful phrase, although it addressed... Although it addresses harsh realities, we can see examples of Christ empathizing with our common infirmities throughout the Gospels. Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend or confidant? Christ was. Have you ever experienced the loss of a close friend? As Rachel was just reading from John, Christ did. Have you ever experienced intense, excruciating pain? Christ did. Have you ever been slandered, mocked, and rejected? Christ was. Exactly. That's really summarizes well what we were talking about here. I find comfort in it, too. It is, because, and that's what the Hebrews passage says. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize, who can't empathize with us. We have have one who has been through everything and more that we can go through uh, without sin. But with, you know, as, as a human, he has suffered, and he knows. And so when we go and we pray, he knows. And he understands and he comforts us. Yeah, uh, it's it's amazing. It, it, it almost blows me away mm-hmm. just thinking about mm-hmm. it. So I think partly because of our episodes, um, because of your book, Rachel, <laughs> we've we've seen some things that and my husband was actually shocked by this when I was showing him some of the stuff that people were taking issue with a husband being a servant leader. Mm-hmm. He said, wait, p- people are having a problem with that, but, but Christ, you know? 
And that's one of the things we wanted to talk about, because I think when people attack that idea, almost like a servant leader is wrong, they're attacking the very nature of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I agree. And I, I think, you know, some of the the attacks against it, against servant leadership, are really, you know, kind of a straw man attack that, that there's this some this idea that, you know, it, it, or it's portrayed as that some that servant leadership is some kind of, you know, milk toast you know, leader who, who just, you know, rubber stamps and yes, ma'am, every time his wife wants to do something. And, and so there's, there's no, in, in this view, no real leadership. It's just, you know, someone who can be walked all over and, and doesn't ever, um, you know, doesn't ever say no. Right. And, you know, that's, that's a straw man because that is not in any way, uh, just the description of a of a servant leader that we're talking about it's not the picture of servant leadership that we see in scripture and you know that's it's not at all what what's going on uh, in these passages you know i saw something interesting and i didn't think about it till you were talking right now so i can't if i can find the article i'll link it in the episode notes but i it was very fascinating it was a secular company and they were trying to improve morale and productivity in the company. And they realized that the way that they were, the higher-ups were leading was not really effective. Mm. It was more with a hard hand. And so they had decided to approach it with more a servant leadership mm-hmm. um, approach. I thought it was fascinating because there was nothing Christian about this whatsoever, but I thought, well, it is. They're, they are taking this right from... Christ in the Bible, I mean, ultimately, since he's the example of, of servant leadership, and and they found something fascinating. It changed morale at the company. It changed productivity. So I think that's absolutely right. You see that. It doesn't surprise me because you, you see it in in companies and corporations that when the the leadership, when the management, um, you know, get in there and roll up their sleeves and work too, and um, you know, lead by example. And, you know, the, when you know that the, the guy who's running the, the company is one who has done all these jobs himself or herself, right? You know, when you know that, um, then, you know, it changes how, you know, like, you know, oh, they, they know what I'm, what I'm going through. They know how to do this kind of job. And, you know, they, they get what it's like to be, you know, working through this and they see and they're, they're in it with us. And it, it does change morale in a company. Yeah, my husband has actually seen this. He's been with United Airlines for almost 30 years, and he's seen it with the different presidents that they have. And the their current president, he just, he le- or CEO, I think, I'm sorry, I think, um, CEO, um, just gets in there with the people. One day he was uh, walking by and, and saw him, um, and he was eating breakfast with someone else, and, and the CEO said, hey, come sit with us. And, and talked with him. And anyways, just a very different way, you know, down, didn't, didn't act like he was better mm-hmm. than, than everyone else, but that, you know, they were all here working together. And, and that's where, you know, when we're talking about, you know, who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We have, even when we're dealing with people outside the church, you know, we, we know that we have a shared um, history and that we are all, uh, brothers and sisters, you know, we come from Adam, right? So we're all made in the image of God. We all are, are related in that way. Uh, but in the church especially, you know, we are, 
brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are part of the body together of Christ. And so even in our, our various other relationships between in marriage or in in the workplace or the church, all of these relationships, we are first and foremost, we are brothers and sisters. And that family relationship should drive the rest of how we treat each other. So one of the one of the passages is a story, and you'll probably recognize it since it's um, kind of told in different ways in different Gospels. But um, I'll read from Mark ten forty two, Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Wow. And that that passage comes from when they were arguing over who was going to be, you know, first in the kingdom, right? And Jesus takes them aside and says that you're missing the point, (laughs) you know? It's about service, and it's about serving the way he has served. And and that's where in the Neither a Complementarian nor Egalitarian book, which is very a very useful look at many of these issues. Um, she talks about the meaning of servant leadership and talks about how very often we look at leadership as the key in that word. That servant is, is the modifier so that, you know, you're, you're to lead, but you're to do it through by being a servant or you should uh, modify your leadership in such a way as you kind of tone it down through service. And, you know, she argues that, that, that looking at it, that, looking at scripture and the way scripture talks about leading in the way Christ calls us to lead and to follow in his example, um, that it really is that those who are going to lead, those who, who, who become leaders learn to lead by serving. So the, the servant leadership, the servant part is the emphasis in the servant leadership. And, you see that in the passage in John 13 when Jesus is, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And, you know, after he does it, he says, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And so he, he, he gives them an object lesson of service, and, and not just service, but taking upon himself the role that only servants and slaves would do, and, and doing something for them that would have been considered beneath them, right? Being a servant, washing feet, it was beneath them to do. And he does it, and then he says, this is what it means to, to lead. This is what it means uh, to serve each other, and this is how you do it. And you should also do this. And I think that that if we're going to understand leadership in any of our relationships, we're going to have to understand that we are to lead the way that Christ showed us to lead, and that's by service. I think, too, is being a servant does not make you less of a leader no and I think that's one of the things that some people are almost trying to argue Mm -hmm. well if you're a servant then you're not really a leader I mean that is essentially what some people are saying you can't you can't be a servant and a leader and and yet 
that is who Christ was. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it's amazing thinking that, you know, from the Mark passage that he, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about what I wanted to add. Um, it's something that I've, I've used before in another discussion, but this idea that servant leadership means that, you know, especially in the marriage, that it means that, you know, the pastor or in, in the church that pastors or that in marriage that the husband has to somehow be this, you know, pushover doormat who, who just does whatever his wife wants. Right. But when we're talking about in marriage, especially or in any kind of leadership, but in marriage in particularly that we're putting the needs of the other first, right? Sometimes putting the needs of the other person first can mean uh, that you need to confront over sin or that you need to um, encourage or exhort or, you know, push back and and do something for them. And instinctively, we know this in like with our children that, you know, my children want to eat candy for every meal. You know, we know that's not good. And so I'm going to teach them not to because I know what's but I'm putting their good first, not necessarily what they want or think they want, right? But in marriage and in both directions, sometimes, you know, a husband is going to need to come alongside um, as a brother in Christ and say, you know, I'm concerned about this, or I don't think we should do this. In the same way, a wife in submission can also come to her husband and say, I'm concerned about what we're doing here. And, you know, this is, this is wrong, right? And so we have that as part of what we are called to as believers with all of all of the body we're called to this kind of encouragement but being a servant leader does not preclude being able to speak to those needs and putting the needs of someone first does not necessarily mean or it shouldn't mean that you do they do whatever they want and you just sit back and that's that's not what we're talking about that's what i mean about it being a straw man argument this is not a picture of actual leadership in any way servant or otherwise I think that um, some of the people that op- oppose us exactly like you were talking about, they they make it like if if you're a servant leader, then you're just going to be passive and and be walked all over something like that. But that's not a servant leader. No, no, and it's not putting the needs of someone else first. If you're if you just do whatever, like you just lay down and say you know, fine, whatever, because it's not that's not actually caring for the other person and in either side of the, of a relationship when you're not putting the other need, the other person's needs first, it does not mean just doing whatever they want to do, but it does mean actually caring for what is good for them. And it's, it's interesting um, that um, we see this passage, you know, it's not, they're not lording over. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that, the same encouragement in not just in marriage where it talks about in like Ephesians where um, Paul equates that the husband should love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Um, but you also see it in the, the descriptions for um, how elders in the church are supposed to, to behave and, and this idea of shepherding. Um, in First Peter 5 you see uh, Peter encourages the elders as an elder Uh, He says, shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but voluntary, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And, you know, this is, again, 
this lording over idea that we are our leaders and in our leadership and, and as we've said in other places all of us have places especially if we have you know children we have places where we are the ones in who have uh, leadership responsibilities right but we are never to lead in a way that lords our position over the other people we are always to lead uh, as christ led and as christ gave us the example uh, of service and of of caring for the needs of, the, of others and those who are re- we are responsible for. And I, I think that sometimes the leadership or a husband is almost painted as someone that lords over. Right. And that both of those, you know, both the, the passive doormat and the, the authoritarian, you know, my way or the highway, right, both of those are distortions of the picture that we see in Scripture. Of who Christ was. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I, I hope this was helpful. Obviously, there's a lot more about who Christ was. Um, I will put in the episode notes, I found a, a nifty little chart from a PCA about some of the early heresies regarding Christ. And it, it gives a little description and, um, you know, what, what council they were opposed at or those sorts of things. So I'll include that in the episode notes and and anything else that would be helpful. I do think um, when you're studying this... Uh, that systematic theologies can be very helpful. Uh, There's even some things in Calvin's Institutes uh, regarding this and who Christ was and or is. And um, even in in Burkhoff's systematic theology and, um, you know, whatever your favorite systematic theology is. So, well, thank you for joining us. I hope this was helpful and we'll see you next week.